So I'm going to talk to you today about Aquinas and the problem of pagan virtue. Augustine purportedly said that the apparent virtues of the pagans were no more than splendid vices. This claim has given rise to great controversy because it seems to assert that every act of a non-believer is necessarily sinful. And it's easy to see why one might think that this is indeed the case. After all, Christians believe that all morally perfect acts are motivated by supernatural love for God. They also believe that the very ability to have such a motive is impossible without God's saving grace, which is itself a gift from God. One might naturally conclude, then, that if non-Christians are incapable of morally perfect action, the only alternative is that all their acts are sinful. Indeed, some believe this is the correct interpretation of Paul's claim in Romans 14.23 that all that is not of faith is sin. Even if there are understandable reasons for holding this view, though, it can also seem rather harsh. For it requires us to agree that many of the actions that we have historically admired, and indeed many of the acts that we admire in our own acquaintances, are in fact sinful. It requires us to agree, for instance, that Socrates was sinning when he died for truth, that the Spartan king Leonidas and his men sinned when they sacrificed their lives to save all of Greece from the Persian hordes, that our atheist neighbor is sinning when she shovels our walk for us, and the list goes on. More importantly, even if we agree that Socrates and Leonidas and our atheist neighbor did not act out of supernatural love for God, is the only alternative really to conclude that their acts were sinful? Mightn't there be some kind of middle ground? In what follows, I want to explain one way of arguing for such a middle ground, namely that offered by Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, I will argue, believes that although true moral perfection is impossible apart from grace, it is still possible for non-Christians to avoid sin in some of their acts and even to develop genuinely good habits. Now, the key to establishing this middle ground will be establishing the possibility of acts that are neither sinful nor motivated by supernatural love for God. So I'm going to start with an example of an action that intuitively seems like it could fall into such a middle ground, and then show how Aquinas' notion of the good of nature helps to explain this intuition. After explaining Aquinas' notion of the good of nature, I'm going to make four points. First, I'm going to explain why Aquinas thinks that man can perform acts ordered to the good of nature without God's saving grace. Second, I will explain what it would mean to cultivate the ability to perform such acts habitually, i.e. to cultivate the so-called natural virtues. Third, I will explain how Aquinas believes original sin affects man's ability to cultivate these virtues. And then finally, with this groundwork in place, I will conclude by explaining why Aquinas believes that even one who successfully cultivates virtues ordered to his natural good still needs God's saving grace in order to become a citizen of heaven. 
Okay, so I'm going to start by offering an example of an action that intuitively, to me at least, seems like it could fall into a middle ground, i.e. an action that could have been motivated neither by sinful desires nor supernatural love for God. 480 years before the birth of Christ, 7,000 Spartans and their Greek allies defended a narrow mountain pass against 100,000 Persian invaders at a place called Thermopylae. The Spartans knew they could not hold the pass for very long, but they also knew that if they held the pass long enough, they could give their navy time to assemble and fight off the invaders, and thus possibly save the lives of their families and countrymen. The Greeks held the pass for a few days, and then, when it was clear they were about to be overwhelmed, the Spartan king Leonidas dismissed his forces, and he and a small group of his men, 300 according to legends and movie titles everywhere, stayed behind and continued to block the Persian advance while the rest of the Greek forces retreated to safety. Leonidas and his 300, as they knew they would be, were overwhelmed and killed by Persians. But by their sacrifice, they saved not only their comrades, but also all of Greece. For centuries, we have praised the sacrifice of Leonidas and his men. The ancient Greeks commemorated the spot with a plaque that still stands today. There are books and movies devoted to the events that occurred at Thermopylae. But the question for present purposes, of course, is how we should evaluate the actions of Leonidas and his men. Should we agree that even if they did a good thing, they were necessarily driven by sinful motives? It's certainly likely that at least some of the Spartan 300 sacrificed their lives for sinful reasons like pride. Should we say that all of them acted for sinful reasons? Some scholars, most notably Peter Abelard, have argued that since God can bestow his grace where he wills, he can also bestow it on pagans. So we could possibly argue that some of the Spartans didn't sacrifice their lives for sinful motives because they, unbeknownst even to themselves, had received God's saving grace and were thus capable, again, unbeknownst even to themselves, of acting out of supernatural love for God. But should we even have to go that far? Couldn't at least some of the Spartans have been motivated neither by pride or personal glory or by supernatural love for God, but simply by some genuinely good desire? Couldn't some of them have chosen to act as they did simply because they thought it was the right thing to do or because they desired to save their families and countrymen from a grisly fate? In a number of places, but most tellingly in his commentary on Romans 14.23, Aquinas indicates that he thinks something like this is the case. In his commentary on Paul's claim in Romans 14.23 that all that is not of faith is sin, Aquinas makes a number of important distinctions. First, he distinguishes the believer's relation to good from the unbeliever's relation to evil. The former, says Aquinas, is all or nothing in a way that the latter is not. In one who has living faith, 
says Aquinas, quote, there is nothing of condemnation, i.e. there is no evil. But, he continues, the unbeliever's relation to evil is not the same as the believer's relation to good. That is to say, Aquinas thinks we cannot conclude that just because there is evil in the unbeliever, there is nothing good in him. For even in the unbeliever, there is still the good of nature. This means, says Aquinas, that the unbeliever does not necessarily refer all he does to an evil end. He has the capacity to refer his acts to something good, the good of nature. Because of this, not everything he does is evil. Since he has not received God's saving grace, he will still be incapable of acting for a perfectly good motive, and his acts will still fall far short of true Christian goodness, but they will also not necessarily be evil. Okay, now, clearly, the the key to Aquinas' claim that not every act of an unbeliever is sinful is his claim that the unbeliever can refer his act to a genuinely good end, the good of nature. So in what follows, I'm going to unpack Aquinas' understanding of what the good of nature is. And with that account in place, I think we'll be better able to understand the intuition that at least some of the Spartans could have performed a genuinely good act. So now I'm going to talk about this idea of the good of nature. Aquinas believes that God gives us a great gift merely by creating us, by making us to be the kind of thing that we are. If our very creation is a gift, it follows that we as human beings do something genuinely good when we make the most of that gift, when we realize most fully the gift of our creation. So it should come as no surprise that Aquinas, following Aristotle, sees a deep connection between what a thing is, i.e. its nature, and our assessment of whether any individual thing is good or not. The general idea here is that to say what a thing is is also to indicate the standard that thing ought to meet, and that To say that a thing is good merely means that it meets that standard. This is a little complicated, but I think some examples can help clarify. For instance, I suspect that everybody in this room has used the words good or bad, or some variant of them at some point today. You may have said the pizza in the cafeteria was bad, or that a professor's lecture was good, or any variety of other things. What do you mean when you say things like that? It seems pretty clear that when you say the pizza in the cafeteria is bad, you mean there is something that pizza is supposed to be, a standard that it is supposed to meet, and that the pizza in the cafeteria does not even come close to meeting that standard. The standard that pizza is supposed to meet is, of course, a human invention. That's why there's so much disagreement over what makes pizza good. But the things we encounter in the world have standards that they succeed or fail to meet, too. And those standards are present in them by nature, in virtue of what those things are. 
For instance, consider what we mean when we say that someone has good eyes. There are certain things that eyes and only eyes do. Eyes are things that recognize objects, distinguish things that are near from things that are far away, differentiate colors, and so on. But it's also true that not all eyes actually do these things, and that of those that do, some do them more proficiently than others. So when we describe what eyes are, we're also articulating a standard. We're saying what eyes should be. And when we say that someone has good eyes, we're simply saying that their eyes meet or exceed the standard of what eyes should be. And a bad eye, similarly, is one that falls short. Now, I think that such an account of goodness is deeply intuitive. I would go so far as to propose that if we examine the way we use good and bad, we will find in almost every case that we are assuming a standard and making a judgment about whether the thing we're calling good or bad meets that standard. If we accept the idea that nature and goodness are connected in this way, then it follows that before we can make a judgment about whether a human being is good or bad, or even a judgment of whether an individual human action is good or bad, we need an account of what human beings are of what activity or activities are distinctive of human beings. And the answer to this seems fairly clear. Only human beings are capable of rational activity. Only we are capable of using our reason to deliberate about the best way to live our lives. Although we have desires and needs and impulses just like any other animal, we, unlike the other animals, are not simply bound to follow where our desires lead. Far to the contrary, human beings have the capacity to think about whether we ought to indulge our desires and even about what we ought to desire. We can even use reason to train our desires. If we come to the rational realization that we ought to exercise, for instance, we can not only resist our sedentary inclinations but even retrain them so that we come to want to do what we know we ought to do. And this account of human nature leads in turn to an account of the human good. A good human being will be one who performs the activity unique to human beings in an excellent way, one whose actions exhibit the excellence of rational activity. Now, I think all of this helps explain why so many people have felt so much admiration for what Leonidas and his men did at Thermopylae. For if a human action is good when it exhibits what is most special and unique about human beings, then their sacrifice surely seems like it could fit the bill. To sacrifice one's life for a good that one correctly recognizes to be higher and greater than oneself, and to do so willingly even gladly, this is something that only human beings can do, and only a special kind of human being at that. Many of us might well recognize the value of such a sacrifice, but I think none of us can be certain we would actually have the strength to make it, let alone to make it readily and willingly. Leonidas and his men 
at least in this isolated instance, seem to have met and exceeded the standard set by their human nature. To have made good use of the gift God gave them in creating them. So, so far I have described Aquinas' assertion that the pagan can avoid sin when he acts in keeping with the good of nature as an assertion that the pagan avoids sin when he acts in a way that fulfills the gift God gives him in creating him. When he acts in a way that exhibits the specialness of his rational human nature. But even if we accept this, a number of things require explaining. First, even if we agree that a good human action is one that exhibits the excellence of reason, how do we come to know what right reason requires of us in a given situation? Can we even know what right reason requires of us without grace? Second, even if we occasionally manage to recognize what right reason requires, as Leonidas and his men seem to have, Really, feel, really fulfilling the gift of our creation would surely mean that we do so consistently, i.e., that we cultivate virtues. Finally, we have not yet said anything at all about how original sin affects our ability to make good use of the gift God gives us in our creation. So in what follows, I'm going to address each of these points in turn. The first point I'm going to address is how it is that Aquinas thinks we're able to act in accord with reason. So we saw above that Aquinas thinks that even pagans can avoid sin because even pagans can perform acts ordered to their natural good. Even pagans can make good use of the gift of their rational human nature. But making good use of this gift requires at a minimum that we be capable of realizing what the good of reason requires of us in a given situation. Even beyond that, making genuinely good use of that gift would mean regularly and consistently recognizing what reason requires. So I'm going to focus on the very first part, our ability to know what acts are in accord with right reason and which are not. Aquinas believes that even pagans can make good use of their rational human nature because he believes that doing so requires only what God already gives us when he creates us. Although Aquinas does not believe that anyone is naturally virtuous, he does believe that all human beings are created with the capacity to become virtuous. Aquinas believes that God creates man with a basic orientation to and desire for the good of reason. To put the same point differently, God creates man, Aquinas thinks, with a moral compass that points him towards the fulfillment of his rational human nature. Aquinas thinks that from our very first interactions with the world, we know and are motivated by basic moral principles, principles which give us an inchoate grasp of and desire for the good of reason. Since all men not only have this basic orientation to the good of reason, but also reason itself, Aquinas believes that all men have, at least in principle, the capacity to understand what the good of reason requires of them 
in a given situation. Leonidas and his men, on this view, didn't stumble blindly on the idea that sacrificing their lives to save all of Greece would be a good thing. Their very human nature enabled them to see the goodness of such an action. Now, the basic moral knowledge that Aquinas thinks all men naturally possess is just that, basic. In Aquinas' view, it only provides us with a vague, incomplete grasp of the good of reason. The ability to apply that knowledge correctly is something that has to be cultivated. But this, too, is something that Aquinas thinks even pagans can make progress in. This is not to say, of course, that Aquinas thinks the cultivation of such an ability occurs in isolation. Aquinas also thinks, for instance, that we are in principle capable of arriving at the truths of mathematics on our own. And we clearly are. After all, Euclid and Descartes seem to have done so. But most of us don't. Aquinas's point is rather that in mathematics as in natural moral reasoning, our reason can arrive at the correct conclusion without divine assistance. A teacher might well help our reason move from one step of a proof to another, and a parent might well help a child understand why stealing is wrong. In each case, though, when we do finally understand the mathematical proof or the moral conclusion, it is our own reason that does the work. Aquinas's point, then, is that our natural human reason is capable of recognizing certain moral truths, truths like the wrongness of murder, the wrongness of stealing. And reason can do this even without God's grace. Cain suffered all the ill effects of his parents' fall from grace, but he still knew he was doing something wrong when he killed Abel. Okay. So it is one thing to agree that even unbelievers are sometimes capable of avoiding sin in some of their acts. Aquinas seems to go even further than this and to maintain that unbelievers can also cultivate virtues, namely habitual dispositions to do good acts. In fact, Aquinas even goes so far as to claim that the pagan can acquire, quote, a habit of virtue through which he may abstain from evil in the majority of cases and chiefly in matters most opposed to reason. So I'm going to briefly describe what such a habit of virtue would be, and then I'm going to turn to the issue of original sin. It's not too controversial to say that we are set apart from other things by our ability to reason, or even that good actions are those that exhibit the kind of excellence that humans and only humans are capable of. We've seen that Aquinas thinks that our very rational nature gives us the capacity to recognize acts that are in accord with the good of reason. But we also saw that Aquinas thinks that capacity has to be cultivated. Why? The key here is that we are, although we are rational, we are also rational animals. We have feelings and fears and desires all of which can very much affect our ability to be guided by reason in our actions. If you've ever been on a diet, you may have noticed that you come up with all kinds of good reasons not to stick to your diet when you're in close proximity to your favorite dessert. 
You might tell yourself, for instance, that you'll diet more successfully if you get to indulge every once in a while, or that your host will be offended if you don't just try a little. And if you've had thoughts like those and given in to them, you've also probably noticed that those reasons never seem like very good reasons the next day. The point is, our desires can affect the way we rationally perceive the world, even or especially even when we don't know that they're doing so. Breaking a diet is an innocuous example, but there are plenty of other examples. We can convince ourselves that it's reasonable to stay in a bad relationship, or to cheat on our taxes, or to do any number of other things. Even when our desires don't completely overshadow our reason, they can still cause us to ignore or disregard what we know to be true. Although we sometimes convince ourselves that breaking our diets or gossiping about an acquaintance is the right thing to do, most of the time we know full well those things are wrong. We just do them anyway. What we want takes precedence over what we know we ought to do. These examples indicate that our desires can either skew our perception of the good of reason altogether, or at least cause us to ignore what we know to be the case. But reason and desire don't have to be at odds in that way. Aquinas, like Aristotle, held that reason has what he called political rule over the passions. Our passions are not rational, but they can nonetheless participate in reason. Reason cannot completely control the passions, but it can entreat and convince and guide them. In a disordered soul, passions either control or overshadow reason, and the rational part of us is at the mercy of the non-rational part. In a well-ordered soul, on the other hand, the passions are guided and influenced by the highest part, reason. Rather than distorting one's perception of the good of reason, everything in the well-ordered soul works to the accurate perception of the good of reason. If we can all think of examples where passions have distorted our perception or caused us to act against our better judgment, we also all know people who don't seem to struggle with their desires in this way. We all know people who are not just healthy, but who seem not to struggle to remain so. People who not only drink moderately, but who would not enjoy themselves if they drank immoderately. Or people who not only stick to an exercise routine, but who derive great satisfaction from doing so. And we've all seen instances where people who perform some great act of heroism claimed that they only did what anybody would have done. And people who make claims like that probably really believe it. Because they, they, given who they are, don't see any alternative. Their passions actually help them do the right thing. What we see in cases like these is a harmony of reason and desire. The temperate person accurately assesses how much it is appropriate to eat or drink or exercise. And that is precisely what he wants to do. The courageous person accurately sees that someone needs saving or someone's honor needs defending, and that is what he wants to do. It follows then that if the pagan is to be genuinely virtuous, to consistently recognize and do what the good of reason requires, 
he must be capable of cultivating the right order of reason and desire in his soul. And while Aquinas thinks the pagan can make progress towards this state, he also thinks that original sin prohibits his natural virtue from ever being complete. Okay, so so far I've been painting a pretty optimistic picture. Our very human nature gives us the resources to pursue our natural fulfillment because it gives us the resources to recognize which acts are in accord with right reason and which acts are not. As we cultivate this ability, we not only refine our ability to distinguish right from wrong, but also cultivate virtuous habits. But Aquinas is also a Christian, and one of the things he believes as a Christian is that our nature is corrupted by original sin. This will clearly impact man's ability to pursue his natural fulfillment. Just how it impacts it will depend on what original sin corrupts. Suppose, for instance, that original sin so corrupted our nature that it removed our basic orientation to the good of reason. That to be in a state of original sin meant no longer having the guiding moral principles that Aquinas believes all men naturally possess. Or suppose original sin also destroyed our ability to reason. Suppose it destroyed both. In such a case, it would be easy to see how original sin would render it impossible to pursue man's natural fulfillment. But although Aquinas thinks original sin impairs our ability to seek the good of reason, he doesn't think it destroys it altogether. There's a lot to Aquinas' view of original sin that I can't go into here. The important point, though, is this. In Aquinas' view, original sin does not change the fundamental structure of our nature. We don't lose the natural moral knowledge that orients us to the good of reason, and we don't lose reason. What does happen, though, is that we become much more prone to disordered acts. When I described our natural ability to pursue the good of reason above, I noted that our repeated good acts cause our desires to be in harmony with our reason. But original sin makes the pursuit of that harmony far more difficult. Because of original sin, says Aquinas, the powers of our soul are turned in a disordered way toward changeable goods. Thanks to original sin, we are disposed to prefer our own good to the good of reason. Thanks to original sin, we are predisposed to desire things we shouldn't desire, like wealth or power. Because original sin disposes us to desire these things inordinately, it is that much harder to do the things we ought. The very fact that our soul is disordered in this way will also make it much more difficult for us to reason correctly about how to act. Disordered desires, as I mentioned above, can and do distort how we think about what is good and bad. The disorder that original sin creates in the powers of our soul diminishes our natural human inclination to virtue. The reason for this is quite simple. Original sin makes us more inclined to sin, more inclined to pursue our desires rather than reason, and less able to reason correctly about the good. And if we have an increased inclination to act in ways contrary to our fulfillment, 
it follows that we have a decreased inclination to pursue our fulfillment. But what original sin does not do is render it altogether impossible for us to know what the good of reason requires. Neither, even if it makes acting in accord with the good of reason difficult, does it render it impossible. Okay. Now I'm going to talk specifically about the difference between Christianity and the so-called good of nature that I've been talking about so far. So far, I've argued that Aquinas sees a link between human goodness and human nature, and I've given an account of what that goodness would consist in. I've also indicated that Aquinas thinks that original sin impairs one's ability to achieve the goodness that corresponds to the fulfillment of one's human nature. But, and this is important, although Aquinas believes that we pursue a genuine good when we pursue the fulfillment of our rational human nature, and although he believes that even those who suffer the debilitating effects of original sin can make progress toward the fulfillment of their rational human nature, he still understands Christian perfection to be something else. If unbelievers can cultivate genuine moral goodness, why is heaven still off limits to them? The answer is that although Aquinas thinks we have a human nature, and although he thinks we achieve a genuine kind of goodness by fulfilling that nature, he does not think that achieving that kind of fulfillment is the true goal of the Christian moral life. In what follows, I want to explain how, for Aquinas, the perfect virtue the Christian life makes possible differs from the good that corresponds to the good of reason. Augustine distinguishes two different gifts that God bestows on man. What we receive in order to be is one thing, says Augustine, but what we receive in order to be holy is another. What Augustine is referring to here is sometimes called the twofold gift. As we've already seen, Aquinas, like Augustine, believes that man's very creation is a gift from God. God gives us a great gift by giving us our rational human nature. When we act in ways ordered to the fulfillment of our rational human nature, we make the best possible use of the gift God gives us in creation. Aristotle and Plato may have known nothing of the Judeo-Christian God, but when they cultivated the right relationship between reason and desire in their souls, they were making good use of the gift of their rational human nature. But the key point to understand is that while Augustine and Aquinas acknowledge that our very rational human nature is a gift from God, and while they rightly recognize that human goodness consists in making good use of that gift, they also do not think that any degree of success in that endeavor will make us deserving of heaven. Even if every single act the pagan philosophers ever did exemplified the right relation of reason and desire, that still would not suffice to gain them entrance to heaven. The answer why goes back to our original point about the relationship between a thing's nature and its good. So far, 
We've been operating on the assumption that all we mean when we say a thing is good is that it fulfills its nature. But the good that Christianity upholds as the goal of human life, heavenly beatitude, radically exceeds the capacities of human nature. Since it exceeds our capacities, we cannot pursue it through our own power. If we are granted access to this higher good, it is only through God's free gift of grace. The question, then, is how the good upheld by Christianity as the true goal of human life is related to the nature God gives man in creation. So this is what I'm going to discuss at the end, here at the end of this paper. In his famous poem, The Inferno, Dante puts virtuous pagans at the very outskirts of hell. He places them there because he says that they, though virtuous, in right manner loved not God. It's clear, of course, that Dante, like Aquinas, believes that one cannot rightly love God without God's saving grace. But the question of what grace does is important. In Aquinas' view, grace does not destroy or replace, but perfects our created human nature. Just how Aquinas thinks grace perfects nature, though, is important. What Aquinas does not think is that grace merely enables us to do better what our created nature already directs us to do. He does not, that is to say, think that God's grace merely renders us better or more perfectly able to exhibit right reason and action. Aquinas believes that God's grace perfects and transforms not only what our human fulfillment is, but also the very principles that order us to that fulfillment. I noted above that Aquinas thinks we have the ability to pursue the good of reason because we all naturally possess an inchoate knowledge of what that good is. We possess this knowledge insofar as we naturally know certain general orienting moral principles, such that good is to be done and evil avoided. In Aquinas' view, a nature transformed by God's saving grace is oriented to participation in the divine life in the same way that man's natural moral knowledge orients him to the good of reason. Faith hope, and love give man an inchoate knowledge of the goal of the Christian life, heavenly beatitude, just as his natural moral knowledge gives him inchoate knowledge of the good of reason. To rightly love God, then, is to be united to him through the divinely given virtues of faith, hope, and love. But even faith, hope, and love aren't sufficient. To act in a manner befitting participation in the divine life Aquinas believes we also need the help and guidance of the Holy Spirit and infused or God-given virtues versions of all the natural moral virtues. That's more than I'm going to go into here, of course. So I'm just going to use an example that I hope will help get the point across. Leonidas could recognize on his own that dying to save Greece from the Persian hordes was a good thing to do. And he could cultivate the strength required to do that on his own. But in Aquinas' view, recognizing whether martyrdom is required of me or being a martyr is not something I can do on my own. 
I need not only the appropriate relationship to God and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but also a more than human strength, a strength that God has to give me. The important point in all of this is that Aquinas has not at all abandoned the view that there is a connection between a thing's good and its nature. Aquinas's view is that grace transforms and perfects what we are, and thus transforms and perfects our good. Without grace, the best we can hope for is the fulfillment of the nature God gives us in creation. This is a genuine kind of fulfillment, and attaining it a genuine good. But God's grace, without destroying our rational human nature, perfects and elevates it. A nature perfected by grace is fulfilled by participation in the divine life. The last, but also in some ways the most important thing that I want to mention here, is another assertion that Dante makes about the virtuous pagans at the outermost edges of hell. Dante says that virtuous pagans like Plato and Aristotle live on in desire without hope. The cultivation of natural virtue in Aquinas' eyes is a genuine good, and it produces a genuine kind of happiness. But the happiness of the person who cultivates the natural virtues will never be complete. Far to the contrary, the more we order ourselves to the good of reason, the more we perfect the gift that God gives us in creation, the more we will become aware that the good of reason cannot fully satisfy our desire the more we will desire a fuller completion, which we are powerless to achieve on our own. Indeed, Aquinas says that the cultivation of natural virtue is itself a preparation for grace. The more we cultivate the natural virtues, the more our souls are prepared to receive the gift of grace. So, at the end of the day, Aquinas thinks that pagans can cultivate a genuine kind of virtue. He just doesn't think that pagans can cultivate the kind of virtue that the blessed in heaven possess. To some, this might seem unfair. Why should genuinely good people be excluded from heaven? Isn't a God who keeps good people out of heaven unjust? The answer is that in Aquinas' view, and indeed in the Christian view, heaven is not something anyone deserves. It, like the very gift of our creation, is a gift that God gives us out of his superabundant goodness. What Aquinas offers us in his middle ground is itself a fuller explanation of this. The good of natural virtue is a genuine good. But no amount of natural fulfillment can ever make us worthy of the highest happiness or highest virtue. Such a gift, should we receive it, is simply a still further and far greater gift from God. Thank you.